welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Madden America. This is your host for today, Ayurdhidhar. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Mount Mary University and a spotlight interviewer for Madden America. Our guest for today is Professor Nick Haslam. Dr. Haslam is professor of psychology at the University of Melbourne. He has written nine books and has published more than 250 articles and book chapters. Dr. Haslam's work is expansive and his interests are diverse. He has written about personality, dehumanization, but today we will talk about his work in the field of psychiatric classification, biogenetic explanations and stigma, and a lot more. Dr. Haslam, Nick, welcome to Mad in America. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so let's dig in. You are most well known for your work on concept creep. Could you quickly just tell us what it is? And more than that, how did you end up being interested in this? Well, that's a long story, um, but I'll keep it brief. Look, concept creep, as I define it, is the tendency for uh, concepts to do with harm, mm-hmm. suffering, um, maltreatment, things like that, to expand their meanings over time. So what I write about when I talk about concept creep is how uh, over a period of decades, some of the concepts we use come to refer to a wider range of things. So to give you an example, uh, bullying um, is the harm concept, as I see it. And uh, 40 or 50 years ago, bullying referred only to certain kinds of peer aggression uh, carried out by children, where it was intentional behaviour that was repeated uh, multiple times and done in the context of a power imbalance. But over time, people have come to use bullying to refer to a much wider range of phenomena. For instance, uh, bad behaviour in workplaces among adults, not just bad behaviour by children in playgrounds, uh, behaviour that isn't Uh, repeated behaviour that isn't intentional Mm -hmm. um, and behaviour that isn't even carried out in um, downwards in a power hierarchy. You can bully people above you or you can bully laterally now. So the concept is now referring to a wider range of phenomena. So that's an example of what I I mean by concept creep. And look, I'm not really sure when I discovered this idea because often you find you just notice things uh, over a period of time. And I've got friends from grad school who um, who think that I was talking about it way back then, which is now 25 years ago. But I think you just start noticing patterns. And, and part of what you do if you're marinating in ideas for a living, which is what I do, is you start to see patterns. And so uh, whereas I think everyone's aware of this idea that uh, concepts of mental um, disorder or illness or however you want to call it have been broadening over historical time, uh, maybe they weren't also aware that concepts of prejudice have been broadening and concepts of bullying have been broadening and concepts of abuse and addiction and trauma have been broadening. And so all I was trying to do yeah. was to identify a pattern going on here where there seems to be something similar, a uh, kind of conceptual inflation that's occurring uh, across a, a wide variety of concepts. Related to this is the idea of harm inflation that you have written about. Can you just get into it a little bit and then we can, you know, move on to some of the examples and stuff? Sure. So, I mean, harm inflation is just another way of referring yes. to the same basic phenomenon. So essentially what I'm saying is that concepts to do with harm, uh, and as I say, I include among those concepts like bullying and abuse and mm-hmm. uh, illness uh, and violence and hate and a, a range of things like that, tend to broaden. And what might be causing that is some rising sensitivity to harm or inflating our understandings of what harm is. 
So I call um, harm inflation uh, a potential cause, a way of making sense of this phenomenon of concept creep. So can you tell us, like, what are some of the consequences of harm inflation and, and concept creep? What does it do? And you have said it repeatedly that concept creep is a descriptive thing. You, you don't necessarily say that it's a bad thing or a good thing. But could you talk about some of the consequences of these things? I know you've talked about polarization, but there are others. You're completely right. Uh, I'm at real pains to point out that this phenomenon has mixed blessings. It has some very good aspects and some very bad aspects. So, for instance, if you broaden the definition of what bullying is, you identify some people who have been maltreated uh, and you take their problem seriously. You problematize bad behavior. If you expand the concept of what sexual harassment is, you uh, identify bad behavior that previously was tolerated or neglected and you allow uh, people who have been maltreated or abused or harassed to um, be able to uh, report and get some sort of official response to the problem. Uh, likewise, in the mental health domain, if you broaden um, the diagnostic criteria for some condition, for instance, you allow people whose suffering previously wasn't taken seriously um, to get uh, to be taken seriously and perhaps to receive treatment. So I think uh, one um, consequence of broadening concept of harm is that we start taking um, seriously that previously we didn't and that's a good thing uh, most of the time but I also point out that there can be some downsides to that um, you can become overly sensitive you can uh, dilute concepts of, of harm and so that people trivialize them you can leave people who've experienced severe versions of the harm to feel that their problems are being um, uh, diluted or trivialized by this promiscuous use of concepts in, in much looser ways uh, there's an arrangement. Uh, there's a, an array of different uh, potential implications of uh, uh, defining down mm -hmm. what harm is. And again, in the mental illness, um, health disorder, whatever you want to call it, space. Uh, likewise, it's possible that if you uh, uh, lower the threshold too far in uh, deciding what uh, a mental health problem is, uh, you're maybe leading to overdiagnosis, overtreatment. Uh, and a range of other consequences that follow from that as well. So I guess you 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 really hit the nail on the head. I'm trying to say concept creep is a descriptive phenomenon. It's happening, um, and it's an open question whether its benefits or its costs are uh, greater in particular cases. So if you really had to say, do you see more dangers or do you see more positives when it comes to the mental health domain of this widening of borders? I honestly think it depends on the case. I know that's mm -hmm. a bit of a cop-out answer. But um, no, I think there are uh, good things and bad things. And this is not a reactionary idea. This is not an idea that people are whining too much, complaining too much, too fragile. It's not an argument that people are being snowflakes when they broaden concepts right. of, um, of harm. It's just a statement that maybe we should um, uh, be suspicious of any kind of narrative which says it's all good, it's just progressive enlightenment, mm -hmm. or it's all bad. So I think it's been frustrating to see that uh, some of the people taking up this idea have used it basically as a rod, you know, to castigate mm -hmm. uh, uh, liberals with liberals in the American mm -hmm. sense, uh, which it wasn't intended to be. And it was also a bit of a, uh, an eye-opener, mm -hmm. uh, possibly in a good way. When I originally published the paper uh, in 2016, I got a lot of commentaries um, from um, um, scholars and it was a revelation to see that basically people who were um, uh, my age and older um, tended to like the idea and people who were younger um, tended not to like the idea too much. And I thought sometimes they did caricature it, the 
this that they were sort of fitting me into this um, picture of opponent of the culture wars mm-hmm. and sort of a reactionary uh, idea. And it's not a reactionary idea. It's yeah. a descriptive idea of something that's going on that might have ambivalent consequences. Okay, so let's get into one of the consequences of harm inflation that you've talked about, right? Which is uh, what we talk about in Mad in America, the issue of mental disorders and diagnosis. I'm specifically interested in um, how these changing concepts of harm can change our self-concept and they can change our social identities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, and look, uh, again, without wanting to be uh, too difficult, uh, I would say that, um, yes, indeed, there can be negative implications, but there also can be positive implications. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if a concept of the diagnostic entity broadens its definition, or, or I think as we might talk in future, uh, in trauma, if we broaden what counts as trauma, mm-hmm. more people will see themselves as being disordered, more people will see themselves as being traumatised, and that can be a good thing. So I'm certainly not going not arguing that this is invariably a bad thing. For instance, if you identify with um, a, a group that can give you uh, a positive identity, it can give you a community of people to relate to, it can give you a way to understand your experiences, uh, identities are, are valuable. And so um, broadening or expanding or inflating of, uh, you know, um, mental illness-related uh, identity isn't intrinsically a bad thing. But I think it can be a bad thing uh, in particular cases. And, of course, not everyone incorporates um, that aspect of themselves into their identity. That's to some degree a choice. But it can be if um, the identity you take up from that is one that implies that uh, it's a permanent part of who you are um, and that if it's limiting in some way in your scope for um, behaving and for your sense of having um, a possible recovery in your future. And I know recovery is a, is a complicated concept as well, but occasionally, of course, if you take on a particular um, identity as having a disorder or being disordered, um, that can uh, uh, people can take that as a sort of essence of who they are, um, a, a sense of who they are and will always be, uh, and uh, that can include a view of oneself as being permanently damaged, which I think would be problematic. Now, again, none of those things always happen. And I'm very mindful that um, people can have all sorts of good uh, um, sense of personal meaning and security and familiarity in a, in a particular um, disorders-based identity. But I think it can also lead to this self-limiting, uh, which I think can be problematic. I think there is some work starting to be done um, in psychology suggesting that if you have broader concepts of um, some of these uh, ideas, especially trauma, it can actually have real effects. So uh, a terrific study done not too long ago by Peyton Jones and Richard McNally at, at Harvard showed that people who were induced to have a broader concept of trauma mm-hmm. uh, responded uh, uh, more um, severely to um, a, a mildly traumatic uh, film and, and developed more post-traumatic symptoms simply as a result of having a broadened concept. So broadened concepts can have um, problematic uh, implications in some cases, including if they become part of your identity. For instance, if you if you make uh, a condition part of your identity, even if you have an extremely mild case of it, that may lead to certain benefits, but it may also have certain limiting costs. Right. I mean, I just interviewed uh, Dana Becker, and she is um, she's a feminist therapist, and I remember her saying the same thing that when trauma was being broadened. As a feminist and a therapist, she was she was extremely excited about it. 
And uh, but the way it got co-opted into um, milder and milder things, getting called trauma, it was quite horrifying for her to see how the concept was diluted pretty quickly. Um, and I think in one of your papers, you write that uh, some of the significant consequences can be like overtreatment and overdiagnosis and the stigma that comes with um, this kind of a self-concept and identity. Yeah, I think all of those things can happen. And, and one implication, again, if you're broadening uh, what counts as disordered, um, then you, you, you are not escaping the negative perceptions others may have of people who have that condition as well as the implications for your own personal identity. So um, you, you are more likely to um, to draw stigma from others uh, in that case. Um, and of course, that's uh, not a terrific consequence to have. But all of these things are extremely complicated and it's very hard to, to, to um, form strong generalizations about them. So you were talking about trauma, and that's something I'm especially interested in. And you write that it was specifically in the 1980s and 90s that it started shifting shape significantly. Can you tell us a little bit? I mean, you've already touched upon it, how it has changed, because it is something that um, my students just enter classrooms, you know, with, with this idea that trauma is a thing that happens and then stays with you for life. And if you have trauma, then you have PTSD. It's an, just it's a thing that they understand, and it's very difficult to deconstruct it for them. Look, I think you're describing um, something that a lot of us have, have come across, that there's been this, uh, not just a broadening of the meaning of what trauma is, but also just this saturation of our culture with it. Everyone is talking about it. Mm -hmm. And look, that's a good thing in part, because I think all too often our discipline and our profession, and a lot of these professions, have sort of ignored the extent to which rotten things that happen to us in life actually have impacts mm -hmm. and have, have ignored the fact um, that our environment and our hardship and our social position is really powerful in terms of um, deciding mental health. So the concept of trauma allows you, if you like, to recognise the fact that mm -hmm. adversity uh, is an important factor, not just things that are wrong with our, our, our brains or our minds, but also you know, our societies and our life experiences. But it sort of becomes this blunt instrument if you're using trauma to refer to everything from uh, being uh, assaulted or raped right down to uh, relatively minor um, interpersonal difficulties, which are just part of everyday life. So I think trauma was something I focused on in some of this work, partly because it has such an interesting history, but also because it is the sovereign concept these days, I think. It is the one which we find when we study language use has undergone the steepest increase uh, in usage over time. It's incredibly um, um, uh, strong, this rise in how people are using it through uh, the 80s, 90s, with successive editions of DSM, the definition of what a traumatic event was um, did broaden. So, for instance, whereas in DSM-3, a, a traumatic event had to be one that you personally experienced that was really outside the range of normal human experience mm -hmm. and just severe and life-threatening, um, over time, uh, uh, the criterion was loosened to allow indirect experiences where you perhaps had witnessed someone else experiencing something or whether it hadn't happened to you directly but you were just uh, made aware of it in some way. Uh, it was loosened to include events which weren't necessarily life-threatening but might just be developmentally inappropriate for you. Um, and so there's this been increasing tendency to uh, expand the range of events that qualify you to have PTSD. So you have mm -hmm. to have undergone a traumatic experience in order to um, to get the diagnosis. 
So yeah, that, I mean, that hasn't been a linear change. So I think DSM-5 um, sort of drew that back a little bit. But there overall has been this widening of the idea of what a traumatic event is within organised psychiatry. But I think there's also been this um, tendency for everyday people to start using the term in, 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 mm. in looser and looser ways. And look, I, I think languages evolve. Um, no one's standing here saying, stop, we can't keep mm -hmm. changing these meanings. I mean, the words are going to change their meanings, but those changes in meanings might have ill effects. And if you're referring to everything as a trauma, uh, what does the concept mean? Right. And, and like I said, with my students, often it's seeing them. I witness the ill effects of that, right? When which things that happen in their lives, often awful things and often not that awful. But in the end, their idea that this is going to definitely affect me and lead to all of these symptoms because this is the normal way of being. The normal response to trauma is, you know, PTSD is what kind of scares me and worries me about them. That's exactly, I think, why this all matters. You know, there is this slippage between a good general concept like trauma to a purely psychiatric understanding of it uh, in terms of post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. uh, disorder, uh, which, of course, those two things you know, don't have to coexist. Uh, and as you say, people pile on this assumption, this unwarranted assumption in most cases, that because you've experienced trauma, you will have its uh, repercussions for life. It's a scar that will, you'll never get rid of. It's indelible. And I don't know where this idea comes from, but a lot of people hold it. And that's really why this matters. If people were just calling uh, certain experiences traumas and it departed from how um, organised psychiatry says we ought to think about it, who cares? It's just words. But it's actually a bunch of assumptions attached to those words about the lingering, uh, life-limiting, um, uh, permanent implications of what's happened that I think right. is the problem. It's, it changes your experience of yourself, and so there is that. You have written more recently that concepts of mental health and illness have become degraded and ill-defined, um, to quote you. And you talk about three ways that this has happened. Could you say a little bit more how concepts of mental health and illness have become degraded and ill-defined? This is a paper that uh, that only just uh, came out, and, and Henry Jackson was the first author, a colleague of mine. We say that, at least in our observation, some of these concepts have changed in problematic ways in, 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 in three directions. And one is just concept creep, this expansion of diagnostic concepts, which we've just been talking about. Another that I think we've noticed, I'm not sure this matches your experience, because you know I have one particular social and cultural location, and it's different from yours. Uh, is that there's been a rising popularity of these broad umbrella concepts to try to understand everything. So people talk about mental illness as if it was a singular thing. People talk about distress uh, as if it was some sort of uh, useful concept uh, when really it's a very broad brush kind of idea. In, and they're using these broad un, uh, umbrella concepts you know, in lieu of more differentiated, um, more detailed ones. And I think you lose a lot of the specificity of people's experiences if you use these extremely broad umbrella concepts. And the third thing I think I see as a bit of a, ri a rising problem in this area is what I see as a kind of confusion or conflation of um, the concept of well-being and mental health. So uh, often I find people use these terms as if they're synonyms. Now, obviously, there's a correlation, there's a relationship. Um, but it's possible to have high levels of um, meaning in life, um, high levels of well-being and satisfaction and fulfilment, uh, while having poor mental health, while having a mental health condition of some sort. These things are not uh, identical. And I think framing um, 
um, mental health as well-being leads people sometimes if they're experiencing a dip in their well-being, as we all do from time to time, to wrongly interpret it only through a mental illness lens. But it's a problem, I think, if we think that the absence of well-being is illness. It's essentially losing some clarity in our language around these things in ways that can be damaging and lead us to pathologize mm-hmm. ordinary experiences of unhappiness that we'll uh, we'll all have uh, at some time. And, and I think one also one consequence of that also is if you start to see anything less than perfect happiness as disorder, um, then what it'll end up happening is there'll be a sidelining of people suffering particularly serious uh, mental illnesses. Uh, all our attention will be paid to those things on the sort of milder end of the spectrum. Okay, so since this is happening, uh, do you have any suggestions of how we can resist, let's not say degradation, but the ill-definedness of the way you know these concepts are? How can we resist it? What can we do? If I had great suggestions, <laughs> I, uh, I would um, I would certainly give them. I think there aren't any great suggestions except to say just let's let's in, let's be careful about how we use language. Let's right. resist this idea that mental health is the same as well-being. Let's let's not use our words as loosely as we mm-hmm. do. Let's not assume that broad umbrella concepts capture um, the detail of people's experiences. Uh, now, you may not prefer to use diagnostic language, and not everyone likes to do that. But there are real differences between anxiety and psychosis and depression and um, and mania and everything else. Uh, You know, I think uh, just trying to be more careful in how we use words and not just uh, allow this slippage to happen in our own speak. And let's call people out if we think that they're using um, broad terms in meaningless ways. So now we come to the really big one, right? Why has this been happening? Uh, in other words, what are the what are the causes behind the definitions of uh, bullying and prejudice and abuse? And I know you've talked about uh, some cultural, political, and societal factors. Could you tell us more about that? Why is this happening? What do you think is happening? It's a really tough question. <laughs> uh, because it's complicated, I mean, any kind of cultural trend mm-hmm. is likely to have multiple intersecting causes, and so we don't pretend to have discovered the truth about this. But I think um, what I think is at the core of this pattern, because I think it is a pattern that lots of harm-related concepts are inflating their meanings uh, in the same kind of way, is it's revealing an underlying shift in the culture towards greater sensitivity to harm. So a rising uh, awareness and concern about about harm, which, of course, could be a very good thing, right? Um, So as you become more concerned about harm, you identify milder harms as being harmful. uh, And in a a sense, the the broadening of the concept is just a uh, manifestation of this rising sensitivity. Okay, so then the question becomes, what's causing that rising sensitivity? Uh, And I think we have a few potential contributors to that. One is just something to do with how values are shifting over time. So I think one argument can be made is that uh, we have entered a period, uh, at least in many Western societies, where post-materialist values are uh, dominant over more materialist ones, meaning people are, on average, uh, not as concerned just about um, um, uh, material survival and, and well-being, but also on, um, on on self-expression and also on um, well-being in a sort of more general sense, not just as material well-being. And this focus on personal suffering uh, therefore becomes more prominent in that context. Uh, you could say that um, this rise in post-materialist values is one of the societal changes that's leading to a greater concern about uh, about forms of harm. 
another argument is that maybe it partly reflects shifts in the underlying uh, degree of exposure people have to adversity. So again, uh, adversity is very unevenly distributed in our society. I understand this uh, is not a statement about all people, but um, compared to our lives 100 years ago, um, there just simply is less exposure for most people to uh, really serious adversity. So it makes sense that we become sensitised to less severe ones. So one argument goes that at some level, broadened concepts of harm reflect the fact that harms have become rarer, severe harm, harms have become rarer on average. I think some kind of, uh, some examples of concept creep uh, are actually deliberately caused and promoted by people for activist reasons, often good activist reasons, or caused by institutions um, which have official definitions of concepts like DSM definitions of uh, mental illnesses. Uh, so, for instance, um, you can use a concept like violence, uh, the tendency to see violence not just as physical hostility, uh, but also as something that can be done to people through words is a controversial idea, but it is being put forward by people who are trying to outlaw certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of what they seem to be as, as bad behaviour. So the expansion of the concept is done in order to problematise things that people want to have problematised. So there's no single explanation, um, sadly. If there was a single easy-to-capture um, um, mm-hmm. explanation for why concept creep is happening, uh, we probably would have identified it. But I think there's some mixture of cultural shifts, uh, shifts in exposure to adversity, deliberate political um, acts of semantic changes of words. And uh, But I think the other thing I think just, just some of our research has shown is that there really have been shifts in how much people care about harm, at least in their culture. And so we find that from about 1980, there's been a fairly steep rise in the extent to which harm language has been prominent um, in English, at least, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very steep change. Something culturally switched around about that time, uh, and we think that's why some of these uh, creeping concepts have crept uh, since about um, the, the 1980s. And we do know that the more a concept gets used, the more its meaning broadens. So popular concepts tend to broaden their meanings, tend to be used in more and more contexts, and our uh, sort of linguistic research shows that that's one of the main drivers. So as concepts like trauma become more popular, as a result, um, they start to be used uh, in more um, diverse ways. It reminds me of two things. Uh, one, what you said about um, fewer adversities as compared to, let's say, a few hundred years ago, um, that would explain the vulnerability paradox that we see, which is that people in areas where there are more adversities tend to report lesser cases of PTSD. And uh, the saturation of uh, some of the concepts that you're talking about, right, how common they have become, how prevalent they are. I think it's Anna Frawley's work who talks about um, psychological fads, these ideas that come into our collective consciousness, especially in psychology, and they just kind of come and then they whisper away after a few decades from self-esteem to well-being used to be one of those. And everything is about self-esteem and then it just goes away after a point. Oh, no, look, I just got to agree with you. I think um, certain ideas do catch on, and, and uh, as they catch on, they get used in more and more uh, broadened ways, and that's part of what actually is their death knell because when the concept gets overused, people yes. start realising that it's actually lost some some meaning. So there's always going to be some pendulum swings, but I would say this goes beyond one or two 
verbal fads because I think there is a real pattern of lots and lots of harm concepts all brought in around about the same time, uh, revealing something general about mm-hmm. what's changing. And as you say, there's lots of um, there, there's lots of factors that contribute to that. Thank you so much. So you have written, especially with I think John Reed about the relationship between stigma and biogenetic explanations, right? These explanations that that say that, uh, let's say, that reduce mental issues to purely biological things. And you call it a mixed blessing. So can you kind of tell us what have you found um, about biological explanations and biogenetic explanations and what they do to stigma when it comes to mental health issues? Certainly. And as you say, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, John Reed who really turned me onto this work. And some of the early work I did was basically as a passenger with him in the driver's seat um, doing some really important research. So a shout out to John. Look, I think what we uh, were interested in in this work was looking at whether this very popular idea that accounting for mental health problems in terms of um, you know, brain dysfunction, chemical imbalance, um, hereditary influences, whether that was overall a good thing, as some people had thought. I mean, it's not completely ridiculous idea to think that if only we could see mental health problems as akin to, um, um, uh, you know, physical diseases like diabetes or cancer, that maybe the stigma would go away. Uh, and a lot of people had had that thought, had the thought that if only we convinced the public that these things, uh, these conditions are... Uh, are not weird and scary. They're just like any other kind of physical ailment that um, uh, the public would say. Oh, okay. Well, in, in this case, we won't fear them and we won't uh, uh, we won't um, be averse to them. Uh, and we just wanted to investigate whether that was true. Um, and I guess what I did with again led often by PhD students was uh, explore the implications of holding biogenetic explanations uh, or being given a biogenetic explanation in an experiment, what implications it had for stigma when you see stigma not just as this monolithic thing, uh, monolithic uh, liking versus disliking, but Mm -hmm. break it down into its components. So as you well know, you can think about stigma as having lots of different dimensions. One can be how much you uh, blame and hold someone responsible for their um, experience and behaviour. One can be about how dangerous or unpredictable um, you think um, the person with the condition is. One can be how pessimistic you are about their chances of recovery. So um, why we called it the mixed blessings model, the the, the, uh, conclusion we came out of it was that what we found was that consistently studies showed that people who endorse biogenetic explanations for mental health problems uh, tend to blame those people less, which is a good thing. They're not being held responsible for um, the problems they might have, uh, which, again, good thing. Uh, But um, regrettably, they also tended to see um, these folk as uh, more dangerous, more unpredictable and um, um, more hopeless. Uh, So that's really where we went with this thing. And this was found, we, we found this in a series of papers, both for just looking at naturally occurring differences in people's explanations for mental health problems. Those who endorse these explanations tend to have more of this kind of stigma and less of that kind of stigma. But also if you do experiments where you lead people to believe that the cause of some problem um, is a is a chemical imbalance, let's say, that leads them to become pessimistic and leads them to be become averse to the person experiencing it. And occurs for genetic explanations and also for neuroscientific explanations, which focus more on sort of brain chemistry or, or brain process um, functioning. 
And um, I think that's a sort of important message because it's uh, we're not trying to say that all biogenetic explanation is bad. We're just suggesting that here's the reason why it hasn't been the panacea to stigma, because although it may um, have um, a beneficial effect in reducing sort of moralistic anger and blame, uh, nevertheless, it has this um, really significant downside in promoting pessimism and fear. Uh, did you find anything about what it does to people themselves using biogenetic explanations? No, no we, we didn't do that in our work, but other people have. So there's been uh, lots of terrific work done by others. Um, Matthew Leibowitz uh, stands out and, and uh, um, Brett Deacon and a few other people I've, I've, I've um, brushed shoulders with. Uh, and yes, there has been some uh, evidence suggesting that people who have, for instance, um, depression or have experiences of depression, when they are led to believe that um, it has a sort of biochemical cause, um, they feel less capable of overcoming it. They feel more that the only solution is medication. Um, they are more pessimistic about their, their outcomes. So it can have implications for, um, for the person experiencing the problem. It can also have implications for um, the empathy of the clinicians. So clinicians who endorse biogenetic explanations more in one study were found to be less empathic um, towards the people they were treating. So, yeah, this can have all sorts of implications, not just in terms of public stigma, um, but also in terms of person's self-stigma and their own understanding of who they are and what their future might hold, uh, and also for the people who are charged with treating them. Okay. Thank you for answering that. So um, let me then ask you, and like you said, there have been repeated studies that have found that biogenetic explanations tend to increase distance and, and pessimism and, and ideas of dangerousness and social distance. I think I said that. Um, then why is it, despite knowing this and despite these findings, do these why are these explanations still so popular, not just in general public, but even amongst clinicians? Well, I'm sure there's a few reasons. I think culturally, uh, it's just a really prominent way of thinking about uh, about people in general. I mean, the rise of um, medical understandings of a whole range of phenomena has been dominant. I mean, there's been meta-analyses showing that um, that uh, the tendency for people to spontaneously explain mental health problems using these sorts of explanations has been going upward for decades now. So, uh, you know, that's sort of kicking the explanatory can down the road, I realise. Um, but look, I think that, that one is just the, the massive um, amount of research that's done and that massive re media attention that's given to the latest um, uh, biogenetic discovery where you don't see nearly as much when there's some sort of psychotherapy trial um, that shows signs of promise. Uh, it's also because I think, you know, this idea of reducing blame is actually powerful. So if, yeah, if you can say that your problem is caused by a chemical imbalance, um, in some way that is a nice simplifying story that um, suggests that it wasn't um, your, your unpleasant childhood or it wasn't your difficult relationships or it wasn't other things. It, it provides a nice simple story. It justifies the fact that people are increasingly seeking out um, medical solutions um, to problems, which, and I'm not disparaging those. I'm just saying there is one option among many, obviously. Uh, I think there's a number of reasons. You know, simplicity, just the cultural dominance of, of um, uh, the medical way of seeing the world, and, um, uh, yeah, and the fact that it actually does have one positive benefit, which is um, reducing, uh, reducing blame. Right. Um, you have written about psychiatric dehumanizing terms, could you tell us what these these terms, these phrases are, and what what do they do to people? 
Yeah, look, and I think, again, I, I've written more about dehumanisation in general right. um, rather than in, in this particular case. I'm a little bit uh, wary of identifying particular terms as dehumanising because I think people do have quite different views about this. So some people, for instance, find the idea of service user as dehumanising. Mm -hmm. um, others don't. They think it's just an appropriate description of, mm -hmm. uh, of that. And some people think patient is dehumanising, and others think it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's it's a term with a, a good history, which actually doesn't um, mean anything about the person being passive, uh, in the in, which is the, the original meaning of patient. Some people hate the word case; they think it's just uh, reducing someone to a um, to a to a diagnostic category and avoiding their individuality. I'm being resistant here. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, there, it's very hard to identify concepts which are invariably seen as dehumanising. Um, Mind you, treatment resistant is one that I, I hate, and I think that's probably one which I think in most cases is picturing the person as being um, uh, an almost deliberate problem uh, when it just means that what you've tried so far hasn't been very successful. But look, I think um, to, to me, despite what we wrote in that paper, it's not so much about the particular um, words that we shouldn't use. It's just the fact that humans are very good at seeing other humans as not fully human and as lesser humans. And it's not necessarily revealed only in the words they use. It's more generally stereotypes of people as being um, uh, brutish or bestial or infantilized. Uh, it's um, seeing people as lacking emotional depth and individuality. Uh, and that happens in a whole range of spheres of life. Um, it's not always revealed in language. Uh, and I think a lot of people um, will experience dehumanising treatment, even among people who use um, the latest approved terminology. It's, it always saddens me. I, I sort of work at the crossroads of social psychology and, and clinical psychology, and social psychologists study dehumanisation, but they do it primarily in relation to race, gender, to a lesser extent class. Um, and they really haven't done nearly as much research as they need to on mental health, on disability, uh, on some of these other uh, important forms of um, human diversity, because I think there's lots of dehumanising um, perceptions out there. I think dehumanisation is a dimension of stigma that hasn't really been focused on. And again, when we use the word dehumanisation, in the old days, people used to think, oh, de dehumanisation is when you call people um, apes or vermin or something like that. Uh, and in the modern approach within psychology it doesn't need to be nearly so blatant and explicit there can be subtle uh, non-conscious ways of seeing people as lesser humans um, and if you have that broadened concept of dehumanization you can see it everywhere there's all sorts of ways subtle and otherwise in which um, people don't acknowledge the full humanness of um, uh, people they deal with and you know to, as, as Scotland said you know stigma is a um, discredited identity so this was wonderful. Thank you again for doing this. No, thank you. That was, that was terrific. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.